You know, this morning as we uh, uh, have sung our praises, we have been in prayer time this morning, we have been in Sunday school, we have worshipped together, and, and now we come to the proclamation of the Word of God this morning. And uh, before I begin, I, 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 I found this the other day, I asked Pastor Cal to uh, play that last song for us, you know, um, as we comprehend that mystery. Uh, of our salvation. Do you know that the Bible tells us that Paul writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the gospel is foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. It was foolishness to the Greek because what God would die for them. That's why it's foolishness. And to the Jew, it was a stumbling block because they could not comprehend a Messiah, the Son of God, coming and dying on a tree. They would assume that he would come and restore Israel's greatness, just as it was great during the time of David and Solomon. And so that, that wondrous mystery is the fact that God would send his son to die for us. This is, uh, I want to read to you something from, this is taken from Thomas Watson and, and his writings on a body of divinity. And let me share this with you. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we may lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven, that the ancient of days should be born. That he, was, he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breast that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman, and of that woman which himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bare, the child in the womb bigger than the mother, that the human nature should not be God, yet one with God. Christ taking flesh is a mystery we shall never fully understand till we come to heaven. And our heart, if our hearts be not rocks, the love of Christ should affect us. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Again, taken from Thomas Watson, A Body of Divinity, speaking eloquently on the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of our faith. And God has given us a glimpse into who He is when He saved each one of us. You know, this morning, uh, as we gathered in my office, the men did, and the ladies across the hall to pray, we read, and I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me, to Psalms 136. I'll be reading from the LSB this morning. Yours will be a little different if you do not have the LSB. But Psalms 136, I, I could not help but the Lord putting an exclamation mark on my sermon prep, that the Lord putting an exclamation mark on the end of this third and final sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, Christian love. Psalms 136. Give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His love, kindness, loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to God, the God of gods, for His loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for His loving kindness endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His loving kindness endures forever. To Him who made the heavens with skill, for His loving kindness endures forever. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His loving kindness endures forever. To Him who made the great lights, for His loving kindness endures forever. The sun to rule by day. For His loving kindness endures forever. The moon and stars rule by night. For His loving kindness endures forever. To Him who struck the Egyptians through their firstborn. For His loving kindness endures forever. Then brought Israel out from the midst. For His loving kindness endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For His loving kindness endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his loving kindness endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness endures forever. 
But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who struck great kings, for his loving kindness endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his loving kindness endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his loving kindness endures forever. And Og, king of Basham, for his loving kindness endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, for his loving kindness endures forever. Even an inheritance to Israel, his servant, for his loving kindness endures forever. Who remembered us in our low estate, for his loving kindness endures forever. And has snatched us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his loving kindness endures forever. Is it not amazing that our God would have the psalmist write these very words to remind us of His everlasting love for us? The love that will never pass away. The love that passes all understanding. The love that we have read about in 1 Corinthians 13 for the past two weeks. And as we come to the conclusion of this, and as I will make a, a point to you that love never ends, love never fails, the psalmist clearly conveyed that message. Jesus wants you to understand that His love will last forever. It will never fade away. God is always with us, the ones that He has called before the foundation of the world to be His. Now we bring it from the psalmist back into the New Testament in the first century. And here the church is in Corinth and they have problems. Now let me kind of convey that problem to you. Can you imagine if, if the pastor decided that this spring we would decide to have a garden over here. And we're going to take an acre of our land and we're going to have a garden. It's going to be a communal garden for everybody involved. And some of us would have rakes and some of us have shovels and some of us had hoes. And we're out there and we're working. Could you imagine if the folks that had rakes started to look down on the ones who had shovels? And the ones who had shovels started looking down on the one who had hoes. And they started bickering and complaining and saying that they're not, they're not as good as we are. How much work do you think we get done in the garden if everybody in the church started to argue about the tool that they had? Even to the point that says my, my, my hoe and, and, and my shovel are nicer than yours and they're cleaner than yours and, and they're much more useful than you are. You've got a dirty old rusty shovel. How dare you bring that in here? And you can imagine that and, and how the fights would start to ensue from that. Well, I will submit to you that's exactly what was happening in the church at Corinth. They were arguing about their gifts. The gifts that God had given them to benefit one another. The gifts that they had given them to encourage that they would share the gospel in love. That they would live the gospel in front of a community of unbelievers. And so we need to make sure that the same thing that happened in ancient Corinth doesn't happen at Grace Harvest. And, and God writes this letter to us through the writing of Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only to the church in Corinth, but to every Christian church that's in existence today, that has been in existence, or will be in existence. The Lord Jesus has equipped His church with various spiritual gifts that they need to perform what He has called us to do. So here at Grace Harvest, He has equipped us, each one of us, as you're part of this body, when you became a member of Grace Harvest, He has gifted you, and you are to use that gift for the body. Not for yourself, but for the body. Not in, not in some kind of, of conceited way that your gift happens to be greater than somebody else's gift that you think, or that you look down at another believer and say that their gift isn't as good as yours. That, that is exactly what was happening in Corinth, and we need to be very careful that it doesn't happen here, that you need to be humble, and you need to be meek when you, the use of your gifts. See, these were the things that the Apostle Paul described to us in 1 Corinthians 12, things like the gifts of teaching, words of knowledge, working of miracles, prophecies, healings, gifts of administration, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And these were all means to an end. And what was that end? 
Again, the furtherance of the gospel, the growth of God's people. You see, uh, you've heard me say before, when you got saved, it stopped being about you. It stopped being about you in the sense that God saved you to use you for His glory. And when we think that way and when we have an attitude that way, we're less likely to be offended. We're less likely to take offense when someone says something or they don't do something that we think they should. When we realize that all of what we do is for God and His glory. And so I, I would ask you this morning, is that your consideration? When, when, you, when you think of serp, when you came here this morning, did you come here with the attitude and, and, and the desire to serve your brothers and sisters? I, I, it's a unique thing, Grace Harvest, is a unique place because so many people here serve. You know, some churches, you, you'll hear you have, you, know, you have 200 people in a church and maybe 20 do all the work. That's not the, that's not the case here. We're blessed in that. And I think that speaks volumes to your spiritual maturity, church. But only you can answer that question, am I the one that the pastor just referred to? Am I the one that's using my gift for spiritual maturity, or am I just showing up and sucking out the life of everybody else? That's not a very nice way to put it, is it, Pastor? But that's what happens. We are there to serve everyone else. And so the Lord wanted to make sure that we understand that. So this morning, if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word, and I will read all of 1 Corinthians to you, 13, as I have done the previous two weeks to give us an overview and the final verses that we will discuss today. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but, not, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me Nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. does not brag. is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. does not seek its own. is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. The gift if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with the childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know, I will know fully just as, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, your people have gathered in this place. And Father, in the stillness of this moment, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, for your flock. And as the under-shepherd, Father, I, I pray that you use me for your glory this morning. I pray, Father, that the words spoken today would be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters who need encouraging. I pray, Father, it would bring conviction for us as it did me when I prepared this sermon, Lord. And I pray, Father, for the one who does not know you, that the mystery is still a mystery, that you would send your son to die for a wretched sinner like me, to take my place, to take my punishment. And, Father, when we confess with our mouth that your son is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, and we believe that he's been raised from the death, Father, that you have brought us into eternal life. And your everlasting love will endure forever. I pray for that person today that this very hour they would come to saving faith. I ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, just a quick review of chapter 13. Uh, Paul wrote to correct the Corinthians' false understanding about the gifts. And we have covered that extensively, but in doing so, he put the spotlight away from the gifts onto love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he wrote to explain to them how love was to be a guiding principle in the use of those gifts. The gifts that he has given us, we are supposed to use them in love. In verses 1 through 3, he taught them that without sincere, genuine, 
agape love, the self-sacrificing love, love, excuse me, the self-sacrificing kind of love that Jesus has shown to us when He went to the cross. Without that kind of love, the spiritual gifts can accomplish nothing. Nothing for God. And so we need to understand that that this is an essential ingredient to everything we do, do. Love is. And as we saw in last week's sermon, Paul explained to them what agape love is. And I encourage you, if you did not get a chance to review that or see it last week, that you go back and look at it sometime this week. Because we talked about what agape love is, what it is not, and what it does. And this morning, we're going to focus on On these last few verses, we see that Paul declares to us three truths about Christian love as he finishes out this chapter. Three truths. First is, Christian love is forever. It is forever. Secondly, the second truth, it brings about maturity. Brings about maturity. And finally, it is supreme. And so Christian love, our first point, is forever. Let me direct your attention to verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. So, the first thing we're going to look at is that love never fails. How many times have you heard the expression, or somebody has told you, you should avoid when speaking and writing, using absolutes, like the words never and always. Because when we say that, we're usually in trouble uh, when we say that. Like when uh, my wife says to me, you never pick up your socks. Well, that's not true. I pick them up every once in a while. (laughs) But we all have a tendency to use the word never and always, using hyperbole to stress our point. But that's exactly what Paul does here to describe agape love. He's he's not using hyperbole. He tells us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so God tells us this very moment that His love never fails. Love never fails. Agape love will not fail. Agape love is unselfish love. That is not based on our emotions or our feelings. It's not, I I don't have to feel something in order to love you. You don't have to be nice to me in order for me to love you. We're commanded to love the same way God has loved, unselfishly. As a matter of fact, to put others above ourselves. It is the Luke 9.23 in action, denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following Him. When you don't feel like it, you pick it up and do it anyway. It's the love that Christ displayed when He went to the cross for all who would believe in Him. But why does this love never fail? So... Why? Well, look back at me at verse 7 with, with me, please. Look at verse 7. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And guess what? It endures all things. That's why love does not fail. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. endures all things. Husbands and wives, if you were to love your spouses that way, the joy that you and peace that you would have in your home would be what everybody else in your life outside the faith would desire to see. If we would love others that way, even those who defame us, those who slander us, those who despise us, if, if I bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things, then I'm standing not as a witness of Mark Wells, but a witness for Jesus Christ, that His love endures. And the only reason I can endure is because He endures. It bears all things tenaciously for the sake of Christ. And no matter what must be put up with in our lives to, for the beliefs that we have, love remains steadfast in hope of Christ's return. Love perseveres. It's steadfast. It's It perseveres in hopeful expectation regarding what is promised and what will come in the present time of waiting. You see, God tells us what? Jesus said to what? My peace, I leave you. 
He leaves you peace in the midst of disease, in the midst of heartbreak, in the midst of death, in the midst of trials and tribulations, of persecution. He still leaves you hope. And He leaves you peace. And He gives it to us freely. How were the martyrs all through two millennium be, to able to go to the, to, the, to the gallows or go to, in front of a firing squad or go into a concentration camp or be fed to the lions or burned at the stake or drowned? How could they all do that? How could they remain steadfast? Because their love for Christ persevered in them. And no matter what we go through as Christians, we understand that, that ultimately... First and foremost, we're all going to die. I got news for every one of you who sit here today. You ain't making that alive unless God comes back and takes us home. Every last one of us. Every last one of us. You know, uh, speaking of time, this morning, Kathy was getting ready and she spent, I said, 30 minutes putting on this necklace this morning. I'm like, well, I could have helped if you wanted. Which one is that? She goes, it's the first one you ever gave me. 1972, 51-year-old necklace. I know everybody's going to want to come and look at your necklace today, man. And uh, a couple of people said, well, that's really pretty. Man, I did a really good job as a 15-year-old kid. And I gave that to my wife, and she still has that today. And, I, and just like that, I remember giving it to her. Just like that, 50 years ago. Gone. And, and, and if I belonged to the world, you know what I would think? Oh, my gosh, I'm going to be dead before you know it. As fast as that 50 years left. I ain't got 50 years left. No way. I'd be lucky if I had 10 years left. But, but the fact of the matter is, folks, I can tell you with all, all, of them, all that was within me and all my heart, I, I just want to convey to you that if the Lord takes me home, I hope He doesn't do it in the pulpit. That would upset most of you. But if He took me home this evening, I have no regrets. I live each and every day for Christ. And when you do that, let me tell you what. The time that you use serving Christ, the time, that has been the most fullest days of my life. The fullest my life has ever felt is when I am following what Scripture tells me to do, that I'm loving the way Christ tells me to do, that I'm sacrificing the way Christ tells me to do, that I love others before myself, that I, that I don't hate my enemies, that I pray for them, that my desire is to see you grow in Christ each and every day that God allows me to wake up in the morning and, and know that He has given me the privilege to, to be the under-shepherd of a flock. It, it, it just, I don't deserve it. Last week, you who were here, I actually had somebody walk out in church say, she should have divorced you. For those who missed it, you got to go back and listen to what I said. But the point is that when I matured in my faith, when I matured in my love and stopped worrying about it being about Mark Wells, my life has been so full of joy in the midst of trials and tribulations. How do I walk through the valleys? I walk with you Families, as you're looking at me, you know I've walked with many of you through valleys. How, how, do, how do I and Kathy sit down with you one week and you're going through a, a trying time in your marriage or sickness comes into play or something the child has done or something? And, I, and Kathy and I are constantly in and out of people's lives. We're in a valley every week. Every week there's not a valley that we're not in. And how, does, how do I maintain that? How do I keep the joy in my life and the love in my life? I do it because I yield to the Holy Spirit, I yield to God. You see, when we sacrifice for Christ, He gives you what the world cannot give. He gives you peace. He gives you joy in the midst of that. You see, the, too many of us are chasing after something that will never give you peace and joy permanently. I remember being younger, a younger man, and thinking, man, I just want to go party. That's what I want to do. I just want to go party. Go have a great time. I want to go out drinking with... Go out, let's, let's go out. Kathy, let's go here. Let's go to this party. Let's go to this house. Let's do that. It was always chasing this, 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 this non-reality of, of escaping from work and life. It wasn't until I came to Christ to realize that, that, that everything I did in my life was futile. 
I was, I was running around like a dog chasing his tail. It's when you come to Christ that you, you're given purpose. At least you should have purpose. We need to remain steadfast in the hope of Christ's return. Love perseveres in hopeful expectation regarding what is promised to come that may in the present time cause us to wait. You know, some translu- translations here use the word end instead of fail. Love never fails. The Greek here carries the, the, the meaning that this type of love can't be stopped or destroyed. So what you, want, what you understand this morning is what God is telling us through here. His love, our love when we love this way, this agape love, cannot be stopped. It will conquer all. It cannot be destroyed. And it lives forever. Never-ending love stresses its eternal nature. As I read to you from Psalms this morning, in Psalms 136, His steadfastness remains forever. His love-kindness remains, His loving-kindness remains forever. I love it when God repeats Himself. Go back and count how many times in Psalms that He said, My love-kindness endures forever. Do you think He's trying to tell us something? We need to pay attention. Love does not just abide over time. It, it abides through time and, and does not end when history on earth ends. Think about that beyond the grave. Beyond our time on earth and beyond history as a whole. Something very good and very great abides past all of it. It's love. Satan does not persevere. He does not win. Christian, everything you're going through right now is temporary. Any trials and tribulations you're going through, any heartaches you're having are temporary. God's love for us knows no limit of time. How, dear one, would you answer this question this morning? Which of your experiences here on earth would you want never to end? Give you a second to think about that. Which of your experiences on earth would you never want to end? Man, let me ask you this question. Would it be your hobbies that you love? Would it be hunting, fishing, golfing? You don't know how many funerals I've been to when, when I have preached and proclaimed at a funeral the gospel before I get a chance to speak. You'll have people talk about the family. Uh, fa- friends and family members will get up and they'll talk about Joe. And they'll talk about how Joe is upstairs right now in heaven on a boat fishing with a cold one in his hand. Or he's on a golf course with a big old stogie, glass of whiskey in one hand and leaning on the club with another. That's what people say at funerals. I dare say that there's going to be a lot of surprised people when they get where they're finally going and they don't see a boat, a bass boat, they don't see a deer stand, they don't see a golf course. But yet how many people think that's what heaven is? They have no concept of what heaven is. They have no concept of the love it took God to send His Son to die in your place. I'm uh, there's a, one of uh, members of our church, and, and uh, they are dealing with a progressive, retired progressive Christian pastor. I don't even like to use the word Christian with it. I just say pro- progressive non-Christian pastor. And she has steadfastly tried to explain the love of Christ with this man, and he's not been rude. But he doesn't believe that Christ, there was no need for Christ to die on a cross. There was no need for Christ to shed His blood for us. You see, when you talk to a progressive, quote-unquote, Christian, their God is not the God that we worship in the Bible. Their God is a God of just love. They think 
that God loved the whole world enough that He sent His Son to die. No, they don't even believe He died. It was necessary. Because their God would never, ever send anybody to hell. They're right. They are exactly right. Their God will not, but our God will. The God who created heaven and earth. Remember, when you hear the word God, when they refer to God, and they're not talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're only talking about demons. Because there are no other gods except God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And so back to the question I ask you men is, if it's not your hobbies, how about your vacations? How about the times you go to the beach, the bay, the lake, the mountains, or the rivers? Is that what you live your life for? Is that what you do? I remember a long, long time ago, years ago, somebody came to this church and they sat down in my office. My office was downstairs and they wanted to join the church. He told me he was a Christian. He said, but I won't be here. i just let you know, preacher. I won't be here during the summertime. I said, excuse me, why not? Because I go to the lake. That's where I go. That's where I spend my time. That's where I'll be on, on Sunday mornings. So I just made it my point to evangelize to him. And he came to saving faith. You see, the priority of the believer and the priority of the unbeliever are not the same. Now, Christian, don't get me wrong. And Wait a minute. Let me get to the ladies first. <laughs> don't think I left you out. Ladies, what would you want to last forever? Your hobbies, your vacations, your time with your children, your time with your grandchildren, traveling. What, what, so the point I'm getting at here is when you think of these things, what is it that you hope lasts forever? And I can tell you that all of these things that I've just mentioned, they're all temporal. There's no mention of them in heaven. Any of those things. You know why? Because God created you for what? For His glory. Not your glory. God created you for His glory. And the chief aim of man, if you know your confession, is to enjoy Him forever. You see, so your joy in heaven won't be your hobbies and the things you love here on earth. You'll be enjoying God. You'll be in His presence. You'll, you will, you will, it will be like nothing we've ever seen. I'll get to that in a moment when we talk about seeing dimly. You know, and I want to say this. These things themselves are not sinful. Please hear my heart. It's not bad for you to have a hobby. It's not bad for you to make vacations. It's not bad to go hunting or fishing or doing any of those things. I'm not telling you it's bad in itself. But are they, is that what drives you? Is that what, I mean, is that what you do above everything else in life? Or is Christ the most important thing? Because all of these things will have its place. How does it have its place? Think about your own children and your grandchildren. There's nothing wrong with spending time with your children and loving your, your children and your grandchildren. But what happens when your children aren't believers? What happens then? You spend time with them, family time with them, you love on them, you do things with them, but do you partake of their sinful ways just to, just to make sure you don't rock the boat? Or do you stand for Christ? Remember what Jesus said. I did not come to bring peace to a family. I came to divide. You see how important it is, how important it is to God that, that He's not telling you, please, hear my heart. He's not telling you to disown your family. No, no, no. If, if, if it's the exact opposite, you pour everything you can into loving them and sharing the gospel with them and truth. You don't back away from truth because they don't want to hear it. You don't, you don't back away from the gospel because your children might be offended by it. No, you love them enough and you, you pour your life into them with, with that regard. But there comes a point when Jesus says, when they even ask Him, there's your brothers, there's your sisters, there's your mother. And what did Jesus say? Huh. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. This is my mother. The one who does the will of the Father who sent me. You see, when you became a Christian, why do we always say brothers and sisters, folks? It's a good reminder we're, we're part of that family. Like it or not, I'm your brother. 
and I will be your brother forever and you will be my brothers and you will be my sisters forever because we have one Father. It unites all of us. You are special, Christian. You are special. No matter, God made you the way He's made you. You are the man you are and you are the woman you are because of the man you were and the woman you were. And now you who you are. And as you grow in Christ, as you grow in your maturity, God uses you for His glory. Least do not forget that all of this, all of what God has done for us, all that He has bled for us, all that He suffered for us, He did it because He loved us. And see, that's the good news of agape love, that it will never end. That love never ends. That should bring you security in your salvation. If God loved you enough to die for you on that cross, and He loved you enough to write your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and when you repented of your sins and trusted in Him for salvation, that love will never end. You are secure forever in that love. Love never never ends are the words of eternal life. They mean that God will never fail to love us. He will never fail to love us. He will never reject those that are His children. Oh, you who have been studying the Old Testament, you have seen it time and time and time again. Tom, you guys are in Ezekiel now, is that right? You've gotten to Ezekiel. And if, you've, if you have gone with them and have sat through them, you've watched constantly how God has shown His love for a rebellious, adulterous, adulterous people, but He has never left them or forsake them. He will never leave you nor forsake you as well. That agape love is forever. And that love that you practice now, that agape love that you practice will, be, will continue to be perfected in this lifetime. But it will be tainted by sin. It will be. Because you hear the preacher up here talking and he says, well, I should love like Christ loves. and uh, You know, I'm not Christ. Amen, we're not Christ. But he tells us to be holy as he is holy. We should strive to be holy as he is holy. When we fail, we repent. We confess it to, to the Lord. Fa- Father, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me, Lord. This very week, I, I purpose that I would love, as we have studied in it, Father, as I've meditated on 1 Corinthians, 13, I, I want to love that way. And yet again, Father, I fail. Please forgive me. Grant me wisdom. Grant me understanding. Be patient, Lord, with me as I, as I learn to be loving as you are loving. Do not be satisfied where you're at, Christian. Continue to grow in your love. But I want, I want to give you a warning here, a caveat, if you will. Love does not always win here on this earth. And not in the, in the sense that we think sometimes. Did it look like Jesus was winning when He was ridiculed? Did it look like Jesus was, was winning and, and that everything was going well when they slandered Him? When they denied Him? When they rejected Him? When they whipped Him? When they hung Him on a tree? You see, we, we have a tendency to look if, if things aren't going, oh, it's great to love. It's great to be a Christian when everything's going well. Well, how things are falling in around me, how do I respond then? I need to remember that love does not fail. This life will fail. I will fail. But God's love for me will never fail. Paul did not leave a trail of perfect successes, did he, wherever he ministered? He's writing this letter to the Corinthians because he was their pastor for a time. And they already were blowing it. They had Paul as their shepherd. And he's writing to correct them. He was persecuted, arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and like the Lord, put to death because of what he said and did in love. When you look at the apostles, all except John, martyred, executed. That doesn't look like they won, does it? Not by our expectations. You know, you know what? I bet you if you asked the average non-Christian what winning is, and they'll probably say, well, I, I, I have a good marriage. Kids grow up. Have grandkids. I work. Get retirement. Have a place at the beach, the lake, the river. Kick back. Play golf. Play with my dog. And that would be winning. How sad, Christian. How sad if that's what you think winning is. 
Because winning for Christ means persevering to the very end. If God gives you breath, He didn't give you breath to sit in your, on your butt at the beach for the rest of your life. Again, there's nothing wrong with having some leisure time, but is that what drives you? Or is your desire to serve God and to be used up for His glory? I heard an interesting analogy this week. You know, we as Christians are frontline soldiers. We, we know the, the military vernacular that God uses throughout Scripture. We're to stand firm. We're to put on the whole armor of God. And, and when you think of that, Christian, you are in... I want you to think World War I movies. I know this is difficult for you, babe. World War I movies and trench warfare. And all those men in the trenches. And they're there on both sides. You got the English and the French and the Americans and you got the Germans and the Turks on the other side. And here they are. And all these front men up there in the front. They act on the orders of those in the command center. They don't act on their own orders. Well, folks, I will submit to you that this book here, the Bible, in whatever form you're using it, is the commands that have been given to us from God Himself. And He sends every one of us to the front lines. There are no slackers. There's no people in the back. You can go up in front. No, He sends every one of us up to the front line. And our role and our responsibility when we get saved is to go up there and fight for the cause of Christ. We do that with love. We do that by sharing the gospel. We don't repay evil for evil. All the things I talk about in Romans 12, that's what we're doing on those front lines. That's what we're doing in those trenches. And guess what? If the Lord doesn't return, you will die. You will die a soldier in that trench. And guess what God will do? He will send another Christian to take your place. You see, my responsibility as your shepherd is to preach Christ and die. And then let somebody else do it. When we have that mindset, that we are expendable for God in this life and our focus is on the next, there's nothing that can stop you from serving God, loving others as the way He loves us. Because it stops being about me then. It's not about me, what people owe me, that they treated me this way. I can't believe this person said this to me or I will never be kind to that person because they're not kind to me. I can't believe they said that about my wife. I can't believe they said that about my child. And we use all these little things to build up these little bridges and these little fortresses around us and not realizing that God has already given us the command to love. Love. Don't keep a record of wrong. See, love is the supreme characteristic of the life God gives us because love is the supreme characteristic of God Himself. 1 John 4.16 God is love. 1 John 4.16 God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. Let me put that in other words. God is love and we who live with Him and we live in that love. We live with God. That's evidence that we belong to Him. And then John finishes out saying, God abides in you. How you want to know if you, you ever wonder if you're a Christian or not? Check your love. Check your love for others. And see, that's Paul's point. The truth he hoped the Corinthians some how could understand, accept, and follow. He wanted them to be successful in love, successful in being like God. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. In heaven, we not only will have no more need for faith and hope, but no more need for the gifts of teaching and preaching, helps, prophecy, discernment, knowledge, wisdom, faith, mercy, or leadership. I always smile when I read that because I'm out of a job we get to have. Don't need me preaching no more. You have the Word in front of you. But guess what I get to do that all of you could do right now? Most of you carry a tune in a bucket. I can't. So we get to heaven. I get to sing. Nobody will run away when I start singing. 
Why? Because we will worship the one who saved us. Oh, Christian, each one of us have imagined that day. The first time when our faith sees sight. The first time when, when we see our Savior and we, you, me, can say whatever, thank you, Jesus. Will we be able to say it? I'm an emotional guy. I guess all of us will be Italians when we get to heaven because I see all of you crying. Some of you who never cry. Stoic. I believe that day when we see Jesus. Jesus as He was. When we see that love radiate from Him. That love that He shed His blood for us. That love that will last for eternity. Christian, our love is not, our best love is not now. It's not love for your spouse, love for your children, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I say this, that love won't even be the love that you have for God right now. Why? Because your love for God is tainted with sin. It's tainted with sin now. Christian, do you ever hate the sin that's in your life? Do, do you despise it? If you're a believer, you should. On Wretched Radio, uh, I saw a clip. And, and he was talking about how many of us play whack-a-mole with our sin. You all played that game, right? The mole pops up, you hit him with that little thing, he pops down, down, and you've, you've, you've taken care of him for a little while, and boom, here he comes again. And boom, boom, boom. Isn't that some of us do with our sin? Knock it down for a week. But that sin keeps popping its ugly head back up. He went on to say, he said, you know, the problem with too many folks is they... They don't understand repentance and what it means. And he gave this illustration. Imagine if husband and wife, you, you decided to take your family, a, a single person, you decided to take a trip, and you're going to go down to Florida. It's wintertime, and you want to go down there and spend a couple weeks down there, get out, of, get out of the cold weather. And you get in your car, and you're heading down, and all of a sudden it's not getting warmer, it's getting colder. And, now, and then it starts snowing. And then, and then all of a sudden you see a sign, 60 miles to the Canadian border. Whoa, you're going in the wrong direction. And so what do you do? Well, after your wife is screaming at you and telling you if you'd asked somebody for directions, we wouldn't be in this spot. You stop the car, you turn it around, and you head to Florida until you get there. Christian, when we were saved, you repented of your sin. We were headed up Canada. Don't infer anything from that. This is my illustration, okay? So we're heading up that way. And then you come to saving faith in Christ and you realize you've been going in the wrong direction. You stop what you were doing. This sin is an abomination to the Lord. No matter what the world says, no matter what else is going on, you realize that this is a sin and you turn and you start heading down that road till you get there. That's our sanctification process. Christian, when you realize that you're sinning, stop the car, repent, turn in the other direction. And all of us will need to stop our car. Because until the day we get to heaven, we will sin. That's why our love for Him is even tainted. Prophecy and knowledge are said to end when the perfect comes, verses 9 through 10. The termination of the tongues is not mentioned in relation to the coming of the perfect. They have ceased at the apostolic age. We've gone through that. Again, tongues was a sign of gift, and as, a, as with the gifts of healing and miracles, it ceased to operate when the New Testament was completed and the apostolic age ended. God still heals. I pray for healing. But I'm not the one who heals. God has not given me or you or anyone else in this world today the ability to lay hands on people and heal them. We, we do it through the power of prayer. And God intervenes and shows mercy on whom He will show mercy. The perfect mentioned here is the eternal heavenly state of believers. For you and I, the eternal state begins at our death or the rapture of the church. That's when it begins. 
And so then love brings maturity. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I liked to think of as a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So Paul here is illustrating what happens when the perfect comes. When you die. During our time as mere men and women, all Christians are children compared to what we will be when we are perfected in heaven. So this one way you look at this is you look at this as Paul is saying to us that we are all children in the sense of our faith. And then when the perfect comes, when we are with him, it will be revealed, our full spiritual maturity. Now, understand, there's nothing wrong with children acting like children. We let them have fun. We let them do silly things. Dads, your children are not little yous. Meaning you, Y-O-U, not sheep. You are, they are, they are sweet little children. Let them have childlike games. Let them do the things that children do without getting angry at them. Don't expect them to be perfect little adults because they are children. We let them make mistakes so that they can learn from it. We don't, or should, I say, you should not expect your children to act like little adults. But like Paul states, when we become adults, we put away our childish ways. So this has application for our own lives. When you came to saving faith, when you came to saving faith as a mature man or woman, you now put away those things of the world that do not honor God. And so why do I put away childish things? Why? Well, because I became a man. You know, I don't know if other men struggle with this. Maybe you didn't have I, I had a lot of issues when I was younger and um, low self-esteem. But I remember when, when I, I, got, I got married at, I got married, well, excuse me, I first went off to college at 18. I thought, well, am I a man? No, no, not a man. My dad's still making all decisions for me, basically. And I got married at 20. And I said, well, certainly I'm a man now. And I realized, looking at myself, no, I'm, I'm not a man. I'm just a boy acting like a man. And then I became a policeman at 21. I'm saying, well, i got to be a man now because it's in my name, policeman, right? <laughs> so I thought, well. But it's amazing still how immature I was as a 21, 22, 23-year-old boy man. And I, and I think that it's important for us to understand that once we do become men, once we become women, we put away those childish things. We, we replace things that entertained us as children that should not entertain us as adults. One of the things that I have come to be more ashamed of than I used to laugh at, I used to tell you, I might have told a joke to you guys years ago. I, I used to say, Kathy used to say, and this was true, she would tell all our daughter-in-laws, you have to grow up because my sons won't. Why? Because their daddy never did. Isn't that a shame? Men should be leaders of their homes. They should be the mature ones of their homes. No, guys, don't get me wrong. It's okay to have a good time. But I tell you what, it's not okay. It's not okay for you to go home, have dinner with your wife, and go get on a computer and play games for the next two or three hours. That's not okay. That's childish. That's childish things. When we look at things that entertain us, you know, children today, you give, them a, you give them a phone to keep them quiet. You go into a restaurant and all these kids are running around and, and sitting down, not running around, and they all got tablets. Kathy and I had five kids in a van with no TV in it, and we survived. <laughs> you, I'm telling you what. That's why Kathy had that fly slaughter with her. They behaved. Well, mama beat the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but now what we do is we're teaching a whole generation to be entertained by a tablet. 
play a game, play a game. Stop, stop, I can't, stop. Don't talk to me, I'm, I'm doing this. And the problem is that adults don't stop doing that. Guilty. There was a time in my life that, that my wife literally was begging me, would you quit playing games on the computer? I was convicted. This was way, this, this was like late 90s when they, they just stop. And I'm like, well, I, I work hard. I do work overtime. Matter of fact, let me tell you how bad it was, folks. We'd go to bed at, on a Friday night if, if I'd worked all week. We'd go to bed at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. She'd go to sleep. I'd go into the room where the computer was and get on and play Age of Empires. And I literally would play from 11 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning. I wouldn't take time away from Kathy because I know she'd get mad at me. I'd just be grumpy all day. That's a child. That's a child. Folks, there's so many. Now, I'm not telling you you can't have that entertainment and, and rationalize, ration your time just as a parent should ration their time that their children are access, have access to this stuff. But when it so consumes a man that he's going to get up out of bed to go play a stupid game and waste eight hours of time he should have been sleeping, getting up and enjoying that time with his wife, doing the things that the Lord sh- I should have been doing at that time. You see, Christian, we need to grow up. When I was a child, I did things as a child, but when I became a man, I put those child things away. Do you know a Jewish boy was a boy at 13 years until 13 years in one day, and then he was a man? That's when he bar mitzvahed. Girls were 12 years old and one day and they became a woman. It's a different culture, different time. And today we are blessed that our young children and our young our boys and girls have a chance to mature and grow up and to be men and women. But I dare say there, uh, 2,000 years ago those 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds were a whole lot more mature than a lot of 30-year-olds. Our perfection in Christ will be a type of spiritual Bar mitzvah for us, a coming into immediate, complete, and eternal spiritual adulthood when we see the perfect. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. You see, back in that day, they didn't have mirrors like we have. They had metal, bronze or brass, that was, was shined up and you'd look and you could see dimly. You couldn't see like we can look and look in the mirror and... You know, I, I look every time I come out of the office and make sure my tie is straight or, oh, this is down again. Something's wrong and try to look at it and make sure I look pretty for the camera. And we look and we make sure we're doing that. <laughs> oh, you all think I look pretty? <laughs> oh, that, great. Who did that? <laughs> the Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> but back then they didn't have that. They could see dimly, and it's a great illustration for us. Right now, we see dimly what God has in store for us. We see dimly. We, we have the promises of His Word. But we don't know exactly what it's going to be like. I love it when I walked in here just for a moment, and, and Tom was teaching in Ezekiel, and, he, and he's going into the prophetic prophecy. And, and, and when you think about when we look at our passages of heaven, even Paul, who was taken up, whether he, he thought in the, in the person or, or in the spirit, Spirit, if it was a vision or, or a, a, a dream, but he says that he could not explain and was not permitted to speak about what he saw. I believe with all my heart the reason Paul was so on fire for God and withstood all those trials and tribulations, he saw a bit of the glory of heaven. And Christian, we should live with anticipation of that. We should live lives that anticipate that. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. God knows you fully. He knows you before the foundation of the world. He wrote you in the Lamb's book of life. You are His. You are His sons. You are His daughters. But one day, when the perfect comes, and we know in part the things about God, we will fully know. The things that are now mysteries to us. I remember hearing another debate between an atheist and a Christian. And the atheist was making the comment that, that, that Christianity is ignorant because how, why would you believe something that's a mystery? 
We sang about it today, the mystery of the cross. Why, why would you believe something's a mystery? And I love the way the person doing the debate said, think about your dog. Your dog, I, as much as I love my dogs, they cannot talk to me. Basically, they look at me like the other day. I call them in. I always give them uh, a treat when they come in. And yesterday, I didn't look at, give them a treat. And my wife looked at me and said, your dogs want something. And all three of them just staring at me. I go, okay, I know what you want. But they couldn't speak it to me. They couldn't tell me what they wanted. As much as those dogs love Kathy and I, they, 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 they love us because we take care of them. We feed them. We, we, we make sure that they have food and water and medical treatment when they need it. We do all that for them. But their comprehension of who we are is beyond their grasp. God has not allowed the animal kingdom to know what we know. Is man so arrogant to think that God has made some things a mystery to us about Him? And one day, we know in part right now, but one day we will be fully known, just as we are known now to God. And so, I, I, Christian, as we finish up here, I finish up with this point, Christian love is supreme. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is greater than faith and hope in that both faith and hope depend on love. Let me say that one more time. Love is greater than faith and hope in that both faith and hope depend on love for their very existence. Without love, there can be no true faith. A loveless faith is nothing but an empty religious exercise. As Paul says, if you have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. You see? Paul reiterated what I just said to you, that that you can have faith but not love. Without love, there can be no genuine hope. A A loveless hope is an oxymoron because we can't truly hope for something that we do not love. Faith and hope are dead, sterile things if not accompanied by love. One of the reasons that love is the greatest gift is, is, this, is essential to God's nature. 1 John 4.8 tells us that God is love. The book of John and John's three letters are full of the theme of God's love and what a believer's love should be like. God gives us His love and we reflect that love back to Him. We love... 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 9, Just as the Father loves, has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's what Jesus says to us. Here we see that love has something that has always existed among the persons of the Trinity. Love has no beginning and has no end. And this is the love in which you and I were called to. Jesus desired for future believers to be part of His love as well. That great prayer of Jesus to His Father in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And I have made your name, speaking to God, known to them, the apostles, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me, God the Father to the Son, may be in them and I in them also. Jesus' desire, God's desire, is for us to have agape love. Love is core to God's character and central to the Christian life. The law of Christ is to love God and to love others. Love never fails, 1 Corinthians 13.8 tells us, and it will never cease. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Christian, I, I pray that you have, do I use the word enjoy these past three sermons?
I pray that it has brought you hope. I pray that it has brought you a desire to love with the love of God. It has been very challenging to me, very convicting to me, to see the areas where I have fallen short as I compare my life to 1 Corinthians 13, as I compare my life to Romans 12. I, I, I pray, my prayer for each one of you here, for every member of Grace Harvest, every born-again believer, is for us to have a desire to be Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 Christians. Oh, dear church, there's nothing that we could not do for the cause of Christ if we would love the way God commands us to love. I pray that's on your heart's desire this day. In just a moment, I will stand up front before we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we come and remember what Christ has done for us. This is the time that there's a decision that you need to make for Christ. If you have repented of your sins, believed in your heart that Jesus rose him from the dead, that God arose Jesus from the dead, if you believe that, confess him as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells you, tells us that you will be saved, that you are saved. I pray that if you've made that commitment, that you would come and you let this preacher know. Grab me by the hand. I'd love to pray with you right now. Others in here, God has spoken to you way I can never imagine. Please don't leave this place without making repenting of your own sin before God. Oh, you don't need to tell me. That's a great thing about being a Christian. We have one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Confess that to Him. He's faithful and just to forgive you of that. I pray your desire is to live a life filled with love. I pray that if there's corrections need to be made in your life, you make those. Don't put them aside. Make those changes. However God's leading you, you come as the Lord leads. Father, may your will be done in this place this very hour. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You come as the Lord leads, as Pastor Cal leads us. Let's all stand and sing.